Uh, it's my great pleasure today to, uh, to welcome uh, Emily Bell from Columbia now, formerly of the Guardian, uh, and the uh, person who she tells me uh, got her real interest in, in digital technology and the journalistic issues around that when she was covering the cable industry and the TV industry, broadcast industry for the Guardian. Uh, as it was changing back in the 1990s. Uh, so I think that, you know, it's interesting that some people seem to notice that this was happening and some people didn't seem to notice that this was happening. <laughs> uh, she did. Uh, she was hired by Nick Fleming at, uh, at Columbia to run the Tau Digital... What's the Tau Center for Digital Journalism. The Tau Center for Digital Journalism. And uh, we, were, we were comparing notes as she is trying to create a center, and I, you know, preside over one here about uh, how you create a center. What, in fact, is a center? And we figured out that uh, the word center has no meaning whatsoever. We <laughs> <laughs> just about anything. Um, so I'm, we're very glad to have you here, and very glad to have your uh, your thinking and your your your. This is such a fraught moment for journalism in all kinds of ways, especially, especially the digital the digital form of it with the New York Times now trying its experiment. And have you heard, let me ask you, have you heard anything about how that's going? Um, no. I, I, I hear the Canadians uh, have been hitting the wall uh, the past week, and it seems to be working in that it hasn't actually broken <laughs> yet. <laughs> so I, which, you know, believe me, as a former digital head, that's really important. <laughs> so, in terms of the figures, it'll take it'll take a while. Um, Arthur Salzberg and Janet Robinson are coming up to Columbia tomorrow night, so I'm hoping we might get an early release of. That should be interesting. Figures. In any event, Emily, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thanks very much indeed, and uh, thank you, um, Alex. Thank you for inviting me here. Um, it's great to get out of New York and be reminded that um, New York's not necessarily the coldest, wettest place uh, <laughs> in the United States. I'm new to America, uh, I'm new to academia, um, I'm new to teaching. Uh, as Alex said, for 10 years I was uh, editor-in-chief of the Guardian's website and then for the last sort of three days I was also the director of digital content as we worked out that um, some of your digital output was not necessarily tied to a website. Uh, before that, I was a career journalist really reporting on media business and, um, and, and uh, looking at in particular, it was just a, it was a, it was a it was stroke of luck that I ended up covering cable and satellite because it was at a time when media correspondents would not be seen dead writing about people with shovels um, digging up the roads. So, uh, as I was new to the desk, um, and I was pretty much kind of directly banned from covering anything that might be described as show business, uh, I started to cover infrastructure, which I think was a great gift to me and a, and a, and a marvelous piece of luck. Um, I kind of, I'd rather grandly entitle it. So I do quite a lot of sort of talking about what we're doing at Columbia at the moment and what I did at the Guardian. I'd rather grandly entitled it um, in a moment of madness. What's going to happen to the digital fourth estate? Which is one of those titles as you walk, as I walked through the doors of the Shore and Stainwood this morning. I thought, what was I thinking? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I'll, I'll, I'll sort of try and frame some of um, just some of my experience and 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 how we approach things at The Guardian, then maybe talk a tiny bit about, just a very tiny bit about um, Columbia, because as I say, I'm sort of relatively new there, and 
as somebody who said I spent most of the first three months getting my 13-year-old uh, son into a New York high school, which apparently you should be given A, an award for, and B, it, it counts as a full-time job. I was told. <laughs> uh, and, and then just a, a little bit about what I think um, are the key things for us in the future, but I very much want to hear from people here because you will know, I hope, uh, more than I do, which is uh, one of the things I'm going to touch on. Um, so when I sort of... Sort of Alex was saying, well, what, what, what appealed to you about this job or how did what you did at the Guardian fit in? And I guess it was the sort of the, the sense um, in 2000, there was a real moment. And my uh, in my print job, I was pretty well set. I was a, a section editor actually on the Sunday newspaper, on the Observer newspaper, which was also owned by the Guardian. Uh, and people honestly thought when I said that I was going off to work on the web that I had been sacked, that something <laughs> awful had happened. <laughs> and, and in fact, it was, it was purely, I was purely motivated by the idea of, um, that, well, well, the same things that all journalists are motivated by, which is curiosity and enormous ego. So I had this thought that when you're publishing in the framework of a 200-year-old Sunday newspaper, there's very little that you can do which isn't part of a continuum. So you might improve slightly on what went before, uh, but somebody else will come in after you and do the same job that you did. You're kind of essentially uh, part of a, a pretty fixed product, and you can relaunch front pages and you can change layouts, but essentially you're kind of in, in the same space. By spending a lot of time in Silicon Valley at the end of the 90s, it just became clear to me that the really exciting stuff was not necessarily about reinventing the same formats in a very sort of tweaked way. It was, it was more fundamental than that, and I was enormously excited by the prospect of what publishers could achieve on the web. Um, but I think I was kind of very similar to a lot of people in that I mistook uh, what we thought in sort of 95, 96 was a revolution for something that was actually at the time not. It was merely an amplification of what we were doing before. So when I moved online, this kind of the, the obsession of journalists was how we got more of what we did already. Uh, into a broader arena. So that means it was, it was principally text uh, and still photos. Uh, it was still principally, uh, with one or two kind of wonderful exceptions, largely kind of, I think, uh, round about here and uh, in the late 90s at the Berkman Centre. Um, it wasn't yet a two-way street for, for, for many publishers. There were no comments on our articles. Uh, and I think that we mistook this opportunity to do more of what we'd always been doing as a revolution in publishing, of course it was nothing of the sort. That really kind of hit us in about five years later than it should have done, in about 2005, 2006, when we started to notice that people were doing very different things with their time on the web, uh, when the change in programming protocols uh, and the ability for people to create and upload multimedia content from any kind of geographical point, or web two as it's known, fundamentally changed the face of publishing. And that was really the moment at which, if you like, the sort of this, the, the, the kind of the illusion uh, that I think some of the press have been under, that really that the internet was going to be a kind of a, 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 a medium through which they would continue to control uh, access and publishing in the same way that they had for the previous 200 years, if they were still, if they were still in love with that idea, it was it was kind of destroyed in a, in a, in a very sort of short time. Um, I think one of the reasons we were successful at the Guardian was that well, there, there were several actually. There was one reason was that we always had but we put very high priority on technical 
excellent. So there were a core of people who worked in the Guardian who really, really understood the web um, in a way that not many people in London at the time worked on the idea of what web content might be, what uh, users, how users might behave. Um, and so one of the very early things that happened was uh, some of our, our brilliant technical people thought about separating form from content, which at the time seemed like a very radical thing to do. Now it seems absolutely obvious, but the number of early websites that were just renditions of publications put up on, on the web uh, was remarkable. Um, the other thing was we didn't have shareholders, we didn't have to show a profit. Uh, we were not, we were profit, uh, we, were, we, were, we were profit seeking. Um, it made a huge amount of difference to the amount of uh, innovation I could get out through the door and the amount of failure that we could tolerate. Uh, I think it's not insignificant that two of the area, two, two of the places, certainly in the UK, that saw tremendous kind of innovative thinking around journalism and the web with BBC and the Guardian, neither of whom uh, had to speak to shareholders, um, and both of whom had a, a, a very strong editorial focus on what they were doing. And I think we were extremely kind of lucky to be working in that environment at the time. Um, we had a kind of an enormous because I think we were, we sort of we had technology and editorial kind of pretty much worked in step. We did have a much higher tolerance for innovation and probably a sort of a set of systems that, work, that worked better for innovation than a lot of our peers did. Um, because actually the way that you innovate um, in technology is substantially different to the way that you innovate in terms of editorial. Somebody wants to describe it to me by drawing a pyramid and saying, Know, in the olden days, because everybody, everybody in the newspaper company, I can still probably lay out a page of print if I really had to. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows what that process is. It's under your, it's in your DNA. It's under your fingernails. And so, therefore, the editorial idea is like the kind of the the, the sort of ninety percent of the pyramid, and the ten percent which supports it is everything else that goes into publishing and distributing paper. And the whole organisation knows exactly how that works. So if somebody said to me, we need a 24-page supplement for three Saturdays' time, I would know how, who to go to for the ad the advertising editorial ratios, I would know who to commission for the content, I would know who to speak to in the production department to make sure that it was going out with the right paper. When you're on the web, the editorial idea shrinks to possibly, well, 10% if you're kind of lucky. And then the, because mostly what you were asking for or thinking about, certainly in those days, was new. Uh, and if you're doing, doing it right now, it's still new. You then had to have a very intense conversation with people who would be developing, implementing, and supporting the editorial idea. Uh, and that was a very different way of working. But because, you had, because we had a sort of a technologically driven part to us, we actually found the editorial sort of process fitted with that quite well. We did do some, I mean, again, they seem so mundane now. Probably the, the hardest thing I did while I was there was get commentaries free out the door, which I think some of the, some of the Guardian columnists would still quite like to see me uh, imprisoned for, um, <laughs> which was, somebody said you really have chosen the very hardest thing to do, which was pick your most um, highly prized, most revered columnists stick them on a platform and open comments underneath and not moderate them, which was a little bit like taking them 
obviously we never had ivory towers at the Guardian, it's not that sort of place, but had we had ivory towers, it would be like taking them out with an ivory tower and standing them on a, on, on a box at Speaker's Corner um, with the kind of the random lunatics of London throwing <laughs> Or at least that's how they saw it. I saw it in a slightly different way in that um, actually it was an idea that, uh, and the reason I put this up is because it was five years old, I think, um, a couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago. Uh, and I, I went to Alan Rusbridge with the idea, because it was not my idea, I stole it very directly from Ariana Huffington, because I was reading something about the Huffington Post, which had started, I think, roughly six months prior to that. And it occurred to me that this was actually the way that commentary would work under a collective brand for some time to come on the web. In other words, this idea that you wouldn't allow your audiences in, that you wouldn't have any interaction, that you wouldn't aggregate different voices and different types of, of, of journalism was, was something that was, was kind of gone. So we, innov we innovated a lot as well. Um, and I think the other thing we did was that we had a very clear aim in terms of, and I'm not a big fan of strategy PowerPoints and those kind of awful McKinsey girls, so apologies for awful McKinsey here. Every, every time I've spoken about this and said, you know, there's awful McKinsey girls, somebody's always kind of like looked slightly shifty and nodded and then corrected me on some basic piece of math later on. So uh, I'm, I'm not a massive fan of, um, I'm not a massive fan of, 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 of PowerPoint and um, the three horizons and, and, and frameworks for strategy. There is somebody here from McKinsey, I can tell. Um, <laughs> but uh, we had a really clear, we developed a really clear strategy, which was we took what the original sort of tenets of the Guardian were, which were really sort of enshrined in an essay uh, written by C.P. Scott, who's the rather fine gentleman on, on, on the right there. Um, and as part of uh, his 1921 essay, he really set out what The Guardian should be, and it was about reaching a broad as possible liberal audience. So we thought, well, really what we're about is we're about influence, we're about reach in the world. And don't forget, this is also from the base of being really a very, very small UK newspaper. So the number of copies that The Guardian sells per day, if you average it out between Monday and Saturday, is slightly less than 300,000 now. That's, a, I mean, that's like a, a small circulation for a metro, a reasonably sized metro paper here. Um, and I think to a number of us, and Alan Rossbridge was enormously kind of enthusiastic, but the other thing says so unless you have somebody at the top who has the purse strings who really kind of buys into this and supports it, you'll never get it done. So Alan is really the person who, who, who drove this and allowed us to do it. Um, we, we, settled on, if you like, kind of a series of how do we get this journalism in front of as many people as possible? And it feeds back into the piece that I was talking about earlier, which is really about understanding how the web works and trying to make, we had a phrase which was of the web, not just on the web, which I can't, I, I sort of took credit for it. It wasn't actually me, it was Stephen Dunn, who was our chief technical strategist, but I wrote it on a PowerPoint slide first, therefore I owned it. Um, but it, it, was, it was really where we were kind of batting around these ideas and saying, how can we be, uh, how can we leverage all of this kind of wonderful stuff that we now have? And so a lot of it was really sort of freeing ourselves of kind of, of how we might have thought about things as a, as a, a legacy business. We briefly pursued things like, um, subscription and paywalls in sort of 2002, 2003, which incidentally for those of you too young to remember, those of you not involved at the time, the whole paywall debate took place 
eight or nine years ago and it's being kind of replayed again now with some rather more expensive and sophisticated technology. So that was kind of like that. that what, what then brought me to Columbia Arena, Alex was asking me the question very gently, my students are much ruder, and they go, that sounds like a really cool job, why are you here? Um, which takes me back to 2000 and that sense in which um, I kind of slightly felt like I had been, you know, have you been fired? It was clearly the, the, the question that was lurking underneath. Um, and, and really it was sort of some of the same things, which was that as, a, as an operative in a daily news organisation, it was getting harder and harder to think about and connect with some of the ideas that were going to change our industry. And it's great that uh, you have places like the Shore and Steel where people come as fellows who are connected to the industry and think about these things. And that's one of the things that we hope to do more of uh, at uh, Columbia because I think the space for doing that in your in your in your daily lives now as working journalists is extremely limited, and the necessity to do it is 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 greater than ever. And there was but there was something else as well, which is I've always felt, and and one of the reasons I think we innovated successfully at the Guardian was that the solutions to what will remake the fourth estate or what will really cons constitute the free press in the future lie. Not in t not ex not exclusively, but but largely outside the field of professional journalism as it's practiced at the moment. Uh, and this is something which I realised when a colleague of mine had uh, come back from a conference in France about six or seven years ago, and he sort of said rather lightly, though actually it was a very profound thing. He said, "Well, of course, the world of the world of publishing, the world of the web, always moves faster than, than the world of kind of you know journalism on the web, which is is sort of true." Um, and actually the innovations that you see now and the ideas that you see people coming up with, whether it's uh, whether they're successful or not, but whether it is, you know, all the way from Facebook through to Groupon or Foursquare or whatever, this idea of kind of aggregating audiences around content and social activity was something that the press owned and somewhere we dropped it. And we dropped it, I think, principally because <coughs> the ability to think outside the structure of the news industry was just too great for most people because it was too far to imagine that you would have to change. Um, and I still think, personally, that that's not just a sort of editorial challenge. I think it's a huge commercial challenge for the business, which is, you know, we have lots of very innovative thinkers within the news, news business today, but they're, they're, they're still pretty much having to innovate around sales and advertising, and advertising being adjacent to content. And of course, this is not necessarily the world that we're going into. Um, so I was very, it, it was appealing to me to be in a place like Columbia, first of all, because I think actually kind of, I was going to say New York, but because I'm in Boston, I'm not going to say that. The East Coast um, of America is now, is now very much as, you know, the West Coast possibly was kind of in the mid-90s, which is there is uh, something interesting happening around, um, you have Harvard, you have MIT, you kind of have Columbia, you have NYU, you have uh, Washington. You also have uh, this very vibrant startup culture now in New York City, and you have VCs there. And so, you, so for the first time, you have a kind of a content, money, technology, nexus of, of, of ideas and it felt to me as though you have to kind of really sort of expose yourself to a lot of the thinking that is going on in these very kind of like edge areas of, of, of the communications business to understand what might feed back uh, into journalism and be useful for it. 
Um, I also think that it's not just about computer science, though. I do think that you, you, the future of journalism is going to have a lot more people with computer science backgrounds in it than, than are currently there, and uh, uh, people with more profound understanding of things like user experience and design and utility. Um, I always remember Larry Page came into lunch at The Guardian, which was great, because he was really not at all like a journalist. He's very contained and quite um, self-effacing. Uh, and somebody said, to, somebody said to him, Larry, uh, how, what do you think of newspaper websites? And he thought for quite a long time, it was a rather silent room, and he said, um, I think they're all a bit heavy. What do you mean? The articles are too long, are they too difficult? He said, no, 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 no the pages take too long to load. <laughs> and this was kind of like a sort of a moment where everyone went, is that a problem? And of course, <laughs> It's a huge problem. It's like and, and something that we were sort of aware of, most of us, um, but not something where it, 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 it again kind of elucidated the, the gap between how journalism has prioritised what they see as being the problems and actually how kind of you know if you like the sort of the, the, the user experience uh, or, or people who are familiar with that might frame it in a very different way. So you know what is most important? We used to kind of say what is most important. We used to have a card that went on the wall first, which was, it must work. And somebody said to me, but isn't that obvious? And I said, yeah, but it kind of is obvious, but actually it's remarkable how often that sort of gets pushed down by, we want to be the, have the best this or the best that, or actually being accessible was, was, was very important. Um, so at Columbia, I, th I see that the, the town centre, and I, as I say, I look with awe and admiration um, at, at, at the Steen and the, the Bergman Centre here, uh, is really about... First of all, experimentation and research in, in this field. Uh, secondly, about bringing that back into the classroom, because we're a professional school, so it's very important that we connect um, <coughs> journalists and, and future journalists and what we're teaching with that. And thirdly, it's really about sort of having a, a, a stronger digital presence for Columbia, which you know I could bore you with uh, rebuilding websites for a long time, but I won't. Um, and actually, kind of, the, the, the how those three things inform each other are, are, are important. I think, sort of, where the big challenges lie are, are in this idea that, that we need to kind of diversify the skill set within journalism, whether it's uh, people who are experts in law or people who are experts in technology, um, what might be known broadly as uh, um, digital humanities, uh, that all of these areas now are developing ways of communicating and connecting audiences and they are, I mentioned more, you know, thinking about really what uh, you need to support and um, guard a free press in the future uh, in terms of an international, uh, an international field rather than just a, a local field uh, and in terms of a field where technologies are changing all the time and governments are racing to shut them down as quickly as people are racing to open them up. Um, so one of the things I'd really like to do at Columbia is, is, is be a nexus for bringing people in who have, those who have that expertise and want to spend some time applying it directly to journalism. So in other words, people who are very interested in the field but may come from outside the field. Um, the big challenge is, uh, you know, we, we, I'm sure we'll talk about this in a minute, um, there's obviously a business challenge. Um, I'm, I would say I'm wildly optimistic about the future of journalism. I'm pretty pessimistic about the business, or the, if you like, the news industry in terms of how, how it's constituted at the moment, the framework, uh, the infrastructure, the number of people employed in it. I think all of that's got to change 
radically, and that's not said lightly at a time when we've already seen, particularly in the US, you've seen so many important news brands disappear from local markets. Uh, I think that, um, I said this before, you really need people with more <coughs> computer science skills applying those to how to make news the platform and how to make it interoperable <coughs> with the outside world. Uh, I think you also see this kind of uh, world of highly distributed uh, journalism. There are kind of a couple of examples which I'm sure you're well aware of, but which are uh, sort of put up here somewhere. I'm going to wake the mouse up. Um, that just my very poor eyesight. What was it? Okay. Yeah, there we go. Um, uh, I'm sure everybody knows now who Andy Carpen is. Um, I'm pretty sure they didn't know who he was about uh, three months ago. Uh, Andy told me recently that he was sometimes tweeting at a rate of 500 tweets per day. Um, and as the senior strategist at NPR uh, for social media, all he's done is really aggregate content around um, the various uh, incidents of the Arab Spring War. It, what interests me about this is not just the state of Andy's thumbs, which I'm fairly <laughs> sure must be uh, parlous, but it's also, you know, he's a public service journalist and yet he's working on a network uh, which is free. Um, and he's and he's sitting at his uh, desk or in his uh, sitting room or in his bedroom and uh, sometimes I think never sleeping in Washington and he's aggregating and learning how to verify at a distance and it's not a model of journalism that most organizations would know what to do with uh, but it's very interesting because it, in, in terms of saying well who is providing a valuable role and public service role in terms of journalism. You would certainly put Andy on the list. He's not the only person. You do obviously need people on the ground to report this back. But I, I just thought it was it was one of those things where, if this is what public service journalism looks like and it's supported on Twitter, it, it, it opens just in the same way that WikiLeaks did all sorts of questions about how these distributed tools are classified, who owns them, what's the future of this. Uh, what do we need to be? What do we need to be mindful of? Um, is there any point in the established media setting up expensive and not such good infrastructures itself to kind of re re replicate this? Uh, and the other one I'll, I'll, I'll show you is Rockville Central, which actually um, Megan from YC is here wrote a very good piece about on uh, uh, Neiman Labs, which is uh, was a, a local website um, for Rockville in Maryland, which uh, shut down at the end of February and went entirely onto Facebook and said there is no point now in us actually kind of supporting any of our infrastructure ourselves. We're <coughs> going to do this in a purely distributed way uh, and we, because we recognize that if we actually want to be where our audiences are, that being on our own platform is of um, decreasing value uh, and increasing expense often. Um, I think that this kind of, again, causes all sorts of uh, tensions, if you like, for uh, the future of journalism at its core, which is to hold power to account and stand outside <coughs> government and also stand outside uh, business or, or you know, businesses like Mark Zuckerberg's. Um, but on the other hand, when you don't have the resource to necessarily sort of create your own infrastructure, how can you do this in a, how can you do this in, a, in, in, in an effective way? Um, and I think that you know what goes with this again is just sort of rethinking a lot of the processes of journalism. Uh, it's a slightly contentious thing to say, but I spent a lot of my last couple of years at the Guardian uh, in 
synchronizing or, or helping a sort of a project to get the newsroom converged into one place so we had offline and online journalists. Um, I think The Guardian had a very clear vision that it was about turning um, The Guardian into a digital first proposition. There are other newsrooms that are doing that. I think that's important. I think that there there is still the jury is out on whether or not for large parts of the industry a lot of the effort that mo at the moment is going into um, converging newsrooms and converging in particular uh, commercial departments is necessarily going to prove to be the right thing to do. I think that we see a lot of nimbleness from digital native companies um, and that's something for legacy media to think about quite hard because I don't think that this is a long game and I think that we're just in the, in the first sort of you know few of steps of the race at the moment um, and we haven't seen we might think that we've seen the winners emerge but I don't, I don't, I don't think that we have um, and what's interesting to me is that I don't see any slowing in the pace of uh, platform and user development so in other words people are changing their behaviours uh, and platforms are changing and technological opportunities are changing very very quickly uh, and, the, and I, I don't see how, I simply don't see how a lot of organisations that are not just solely in that space can possibly keep up effectively. Um, so those are kind of my thoughts really, as I say, it's, 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 it's broadly, broadly very optimistic. I think, you know, as with The Guardian, you can now reach far more people with important and meaningful journalism. I think that you can uh, see a model of journalism which is uh, supported in a public space in a way that Know, was not available to large parts of the world before. I think all of that's you know enormously kind of uh, optimistic. I think if you start if I was starting out in journalism now when I was um, 21, 22, got my first job uh, in journalism, there was a point at which one might have thought about second homes and uh, um, private education for real children. Uh, <laughs> I think that if you're if you're starting out now at that point, you would think about your your future very differently. I think it's going back to being a profession that is sort of remunerated uh, and, and thought of very much more as it was in probably kind of you know, the 30s uh, and, and, and the 40s rather than, so, rather than a, an, alternative, an alternative to investment banking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know, that's, the, the analogy on that has become more and more hilarious though. Yes. Uh, when I left college it was remarkable how close to get them too soon. But I would, I'd, I'd love to hear, as I say, your thoughts about where you think this is going and uh, comments and challenges. Let me, if I may, ask the first and then we'll, we'll open it up. Um, my sense of what I think you're saying is that the the thing that you see happening is that, that a whole new and very different form of journalism is emerging that will not be um, perhaps even recognizable uh, in some respects. And where does that leave the you know, Mr. Shaw was that the founder of the uh, of the Guardian? Who, who C.P. Scott, C. yes. Scott, talking about the sacred nature of facts and the idea of gathering information that is uh, the you know the, the core of the idea yeah. that there is such yeah. a thing as reliable news or yeah. comment that can operate around. Well, it's a. You know, it, this is this is seems to be again a sort of a part of perpetual existential anxiety that we undergo at the moment, which is once you take away professional journalists, how easy will it be to find verifiable facts? <laughs> and I share, you know, I share some of that. And, and as I say, I, that's why I'm optimistic about journalism. But it, the, the the way that that 
journalistic function might be performed may look very different. I mean, I, I had a tab up actually up here as well, which is, um, I haven't actually um, logged into this, so I can't share to you properly, but this is kind of, you know, one of the tools. So if we're talking about verifiable facts, you know, we now, if you look at the kind of the document, it, document cloud, which is actually created by uh, three people who all work in these organizations, um, but they've created this externally. So um, Aaron Pilhoff, who works for the New York Times, and Eric Lomansky and Scott Klein, who work for ProPublica, have got this really sort of inspired tool for uploading uh, the raw materials mm -hmm. and uh, allowing you to sift and annotate and organize documents, keep them public or private, uh, add the kind of transparency to, if you like, the sort of work of journalism, which really adds value <coughs> to it. So I don't think that the verification of facts is going away. And I think what's interesting about Andy Carvin is that he's not working as an on-the-ground reporter in Egypt, but he's developed enough connections with enough people who are working in Egypt to know who the reliable sources are before the events take place. Mm -hmm. So in other words, when you now get multiple points of view on a story, so, uh, and I think that, you know, what, what, again, what's interesting is, is, is knowing, where to, knowing where to find the facts and also knowing when you need to apply shoe leather. I mean, this is, the, this is one of the great challenges of digital journalism, which is what can be done by algorithmic changes, if you like, to, or, 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 or tools like this. And what then is left for the application of the shoulder to the door or the, or the human intervention? Um, and I, uh, I see a kind of a need for that, and I see growing respect for people who do it well. So the other thing you'll notice about people like Nick Kristoff and Andy, uh, Robert Peston, BBC journalist who did a great deal of kind of story breaking during the financial crisis, was that their personal followings grew enormously um, because they were able to bring verifiable facts to them public. Uh, so <coughs> the format in which they're doing that may look very, very different. And, and one, one further question. Given that all of this technology is changing in ways that are very unpredictable and, you know, and it's a dynamic, and given that the part of this thing that is in flux in, uh, is, uh, is the, is the Perspective audience for serious. We'll call it the audience for serious news. The audience for for knowing what's happening and caring what's happening in Egypt and, and at your city council. Uh, how much of an audience do you see, and do you do you imagine this world that is getting, you know, um, that is losing people who are like we are and is gaining every year people who view the world and technology and live in a technological world very differently. Is that something that is going to to be a, a an element of significance in, uh, in, in whether this survives or not? Uh, and are you optimistic about that as well? Well, optimistic about serious, serious news viewers of the future. When I look at my children, no, um, it appalls me. But uh, I, I think you have to. I, I think there's such a danger that one slips back into thinking we are about to lose something that is precious. I mean, I would make the rather contentious assertion that we lost a great deal of what was precious some time back and didn't really notice it had gone. I mean, 
you know, one of the quality issues, I think, for the press was the enormous over-expansion and the massive kind of leap in productivity you saw sort of really between kind of 1975 and 1990, roughly, with this massive increase in spectrum and pages and printing technologies. And actually, an awful lot of what you know, my former colleague Nick Davis would call journalism and rather pins that on the internet, I think, sort of came from this oversupply of, of, of fixed media. So I'd slightly challenge on the, we have a serious news audience that understands what serious news is. Um, I think that we've, I think that's been under threat for some time. Um, I do feel optimistic, actually, that what's happening now, and you see it through uh, the rather, say, the, the, the Media Standards Trust in, in the UK produced a rather kind of nifty widget we call journalism.org, I think, where you just feed in a press release and it will immediately return all the results, search results, which are substantially the same from every news organisation who has simply cut and pasted the press release. Which is very interesting because, you know, one of the things that has to give is this middle economy of repetitive content, which was an inevitable output of having a monopoly feed into the market. So if I read the same story as, you know, the Alex Jones Daily, Unless people read both the Emily Bell Daily and the Alex Jones Daily, they might not they might not ever know, you know, if it was coming through their letterbox in paper form. This is how the daily press operates certainly in the UK. So the original reporting was in a, a relatively kind of you know small, done in relatively small amount <coughs> compared to the amount of the pagination that was put out on a daily basis or the news bulletins that were put out on a daily basis. And I think when you look at some of the analysis around things like the, the Yahoo's um, <laughs> Yahoo done a study on like logs around Facebook and said that actually the most appreciated content tends to err towards being the longer and more considered content with more original reporting in it. So I think that there is a, you know, I have to believe that my kids are going to want to know where their taxes are spent and why the hospital doesn't work or why they're being sent to war. I think that, you know, it's tempting to think that there won't be that innate curiosity, but when you look at, and again, when you look at young people in parts of the world that haven't grown up with a free press, there's an urgent need for high quality information. Um, and so I, I, I think that, you know, I think that whether it's through your mobile phone, whether it's through some of the sort of the atavist or some of the long form content now, uh, there will be a market for that. It will never be a mainstream market in the same way that Newsnight in the UK was never mainstream. In the same way that The Guardian was never mainstream, but The Guardian reaches far more people on the web than it ever did in paper format. Um, and that has to, I mean, that, that alone would give me optimism to say that people seek out and recommend and share <coughs> high quality content. Probably more than they do the kind of, I mean, I'm not saying that Britney Spears has lost her allure for the internet, I'm just saying that there are other things out there as well. Uh, questions? Yes. Um, I just wanted to come back to the whole kind of journalism and newspapers in particular in crisis trope, mm -hmm. uh, which I'm very familiar with as a former newspaper journalist as well. But I wanted to challenge that and to, if you look at the, the average balance sheet of your average newspaper, or for instance a broadcaster, um, the amount that's actually spent on editorial is usually, it depends on the newspaper, but kind of 10 to 20% of, of turnover. Yeah. And a similar amount for advertising as well, which you know are the two main revenue sources. Mm -hmm. The vast majority is spent on production, distribution. Yeah. So yeah. newspapers used to be manufacturing companies. Yeah. Now along comes the internet, and we 
potentially are no longer manufacturing companies. Isn't that the cause for optimism? Oh yeah, no, completely. But 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 I don't. But so th what I'm saying, I'm I'm completely agreeing with you. But the 60% you've just described has to go, and actually that leaves. A, when I say so when I say I'm not that optimistic for the news industry as it's currently structured, I think if the news industry lost 66% of its cost and a lot of its physical product. That's that is the future, you know. Yeah. And as I say, that's kind of the, and, and how that plays out in terms of where people then put their kind of effort and money in terms of infrastructure and journalism. And that's really why I was saying that I thought that digitally native newsrooms. So if you if you take for instance, let's take for instance, you know, the experience of, of the guys running Politico, sort of John Harris and his team there, and the fact that they are completely freed from all of the sort of the the, the infrastructure they would have to have dealt with at the Washington Post. There's, there's a reason why Politico, and I know it's not kind of universally popular and people feel it's too far to paste and it doesn't do analysis, but it's pretty much a must-read, I would say, if you really want to know what's going on on Capitol Hill. And that's established in such a short space of time over these immense brands like the Washington Post or the New York Times, you know, which it, and, and, and it, it goes back to exactly your point, which is when you no longer have that infrastructure, uh, you can do things very differently. So I am optimistic about that. When I say I'm optimistic about journalism, that is the bit that I'm optimistic about. I, do, I, I think that it will be a pretty rocky time for fixed cost media because they will have to get rid of that sort of 60% somehow. And some of them are already doing it, but uh, and I think particularly in the States it's come ahead of the curve, but I think in other, in other places, you know, I, I'm still appalled that the prediction I made two and a half years ago in the UK has not come true, where I said we'd lose about five or six national newspapers from the market, which, you know, it has 28 national titles across <laughs> the week, and they still haven't gone out of business. Like, and one of them went last week, and I still don't quite know why. You know, it's like one of those kind of things where you think the sums don't add up at the moment. So, so, so what is the life expectancy of the you know, journalism. Are you going to make another really wrong prediction? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, I think it's, I, I used to think, well, you know, in 20 years, sort of, you'll see some structural change. I think in the next 10 years, you'll see a real falling off the cliff of the numbers of titles and the numbers of people employed. I just, it just has that feeling to it. It's sort of, it's sort of unsustainable. And if you look at the figures that, um, you know, the economy is actually kind of on, on a bit of an uptick in the US at the moment. You look at the last quarter earnings for newspaper companies, and it's absolutely terrifying. I mean, you know, kind of it's, it's the worst quarter, I think, since 1962 or something like that. And there's no, unlike in 1962, there's nothing sort of, you know, the, the, there's a structural challenge as well as a cyclical challenge. Um, so you, you sort of feel as though there's going to be another big consultation in the US press. And actually, the sort of trope again, which said, but newspapers in the rest of the world are growing. Actually, the marginal growth now, even in kind of you know, even in sort of some parts of uh, some developing economies, has really slowed down. And you can already see mobile technology beginning to kind of chomp at the heels of, 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 of print in a way that means that I'm, I'm I used to be pretty optimistic that you would see you know papers as a widely read, widely distributed thing in 20 years' time. I'm, I'm, I don't think. You know. And do you see revenue sources? For these as being, you know, paywalls, advertising, uh, you know, apps on iPads, uh. conferences. You know, I mean, yes, it's, it, it will have to be. Who knows? I, you know, I, it, again, I kind of one can get slightly depressed about the fact that people have managed managed to innovate money out of 
web content one way or another, and the news industry is never quite, journalism and the media have never quite got there, but uh, with much lower cost bases and much far more sort of diversified revenue bases, you would like to think that it's sustainable. I mean, it's worth raising the flag now, Alex, you know this certainly better than I do, but profitability around news journalism is a relatively modern and possibly fleeting concept. And that's something where we have to, you know, that's something where you sort of maybe have to go back and say, well, if society values this, how are the ways of leveraging that value into actually supporting it? Because it's quite possible that in the next, again, particularly in the next five to 10 years, that there isn't the money around to actually support it. Um, Emily, do you mind going back to the Maryland page you've had up in the yes. question? Thank you. Um, okay, you're in. You're involved on the advisory board, right, of the Journal Register Company, yeah. which is a U.S. Northeast yeah. um, chain yeah. of many, many papers. Whose owner um, says that print is dead, and all the publishers who don't recognize it. He spoke at the Publishers Association yeah. just last week. Are stupid. Um, beyond stupid, yeah. I think he actually said. And, I didn't um, write his speech, can I just say that? <laughs> and obviously has moved his newsrooms yeah. to digital first. And I'm interested in, okay, so he's still printing, Yeah. And, but has definitely yeah. said he knows that's going away, he doesn't care, the sooner yeah. the better. Um, he's changed the structure of the newsroom, the work of the newsroom, and mm -hmm. of, of all of his staff. And I'm interested if where he is going is just an order <coughs> of magnitude change from Rockville Central. Um, well, they, I mean, it, how important even platform yeah. is for the future yeah. if you talk about regional yeah. publishing in the United States yeah. and what implications if platform isn't important, even if you take away print, yeah. what the implications are for the type of content you yes. used on a yes. Rockville Central. Yes. I think that's a question. I think that's a really good point because, yes, you're absolutely right that the natural trajectory of something like the JRC, which is to get rid of um, all the infrastructure which costs you money and use the free tools wherever you can, exactly. actually speaks to a strategy that says eventually you migrate the platform completely. Yes. But I would, so I would argue that... Where does the journalism fit in? Well, <coughs> then, uh, then, then two things. One of which is, you know, Facebook is just not a great, it's not a great framework for journalism. So either the platforms that contain it will have to become much more agile. Uh, and I think, but I think there is a huge question, and I think that WikiLeaks really shone a light on this because it's not just about the extraordinary event of Julian Assange; it's also about what happens to documents from your local hospital or the exactly. budgetary spending. What what is you know what's the future of that kind of content, and how do news organisations operate as a part of the public sphere? Uh, which should not be owned or controlled by a third party. You know, this is why kind of the independence of the press was really important. Um, and I don't think that Facebook and Twitter solve those problems at all because mm -hmm. they're not utilities, they are privately owned companies. Um, and I think that everybody at the moment who has, what's really interesting is that if you kind of sat down with a, a group of journalists and you sat down with a group of um, technologists, and you showed them everything that could be done to their content with Facebook. It, it is pretty impressive. But you also kind of have to think about, and I don't know the answer to this, but you do have to think about the identity of the people that want to interact with you. You have to think about the protection of the sources of the information that wants to come to you. You have to think about uh, 
the value of the archive and who owns it and how you store that. You have to think about what the um, you know what what the sort of the, the, the long term footprint of your organisation looks like. And if it really looks like something which is just sort of today's news and then it disappears into a repository where Mark Zuckerberg or Evan Williams or whoever can say, you know, the, I, don't know I used to sort of occasionally as a thought exercise say, what if North Korea bought Google? How would, <laughs> how, how would we feel about that? Or how would you feel about Obviously in kind of Britain we don't really think much about North Korea, but um, it's, you know, what does that look like? These are the sort of things that, 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 that really kind of in, in the constitution of the press meant that it was always a good idea to own your own presses. And, and, and we had a, a, Megan was actually there, we had an incredible day at the Journal Register, seeing a sort of a town hall meeting, not unlike this one, where we were on the advisory board and the people around us, not just the journalists in the paper, but everybody who wanted to walk in. And a lot of the kind of townspeople and officials of, 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 of Torrington were there. And then afterwards, we went to the um, presses, which until 90 days previously had been occupied. And it was an extraordinary jolt because you saw this purpose-built building in not a big town, town size of Torrington, which had a factory in its basement, this printing press, and all of these kind of parts of you know, the fixed cost infrastructure and the kind of the ghosts of those. Uh, and you thought this is a, it, it, it's incredible that it's taken so long, if you like, to realize that something that is more on a traje trajectory where you're using free tools to get your content out there is going to be such an important part of the future. But I, I'm not, you know, if I if I was running a if I was running a small regional newspaper, I wouldn't necessarily I think that the, the, the people doing Rockville were, were saying we're really interested in what we can do with community and this is where the community is. I think that difficult public service journalism is difficult to do on still difficult to do on distributed platforms and be, for you to be certain that you can protect sources and that you can keep publishing. Mm -hmm. And I think that those are the things that, that, that would trouble me. Um, just to follow on that, so we're talking about public service journalism, which would be nice if it happened in the public. And one of the vic funny victories of digital culture is that it's it's a private space. In other words, and we've been talking a lot about this here, choice. Um, as you get better and better at niche marketing, as the Guardian gets better, I mean, the Guardian came, you know, during the Bush administration, Americans read the Guardian, mm -hmm. right? A chunk. Uh, so you have Guardian over here, you have Newsmax over there, and plus times a thousand. So what we we're getting are these private spaces, because people consume this stuff alone. I mean, that, that to me is one of the ironies of this great victory, is that, you know, if someone's asleep, and you're awake, and you've got this blue light on your face, and you're you're reading about everything, you're up by yourself. So my question is, where's the public comments? Like, how do you take on the idea of this information being part of a public conversation if the whole kind of design and nature of digital culture is private and individual? Well, I think we have a much more, you know, the digital platforms have given us a much more kind of public comments than, um, Actually, kind of, if you like, old media ever did. Well, just yeah, in terms of comments, in terms of the ability to publish two things as well as consuming them. Um, so I'm not, I, I, I don't necessarily come from exactly the same point that you come from, though I do completely agree with your 
concluding point, which is what, is, what does the public commons look like? Yeah. And that, I suppose, goes back to who owns the printing press. And if, this is the, if, the, if, if Facebook is the market square, do you really want Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> your, owning your market square? Um, do you want Twitter being a private entity on which people uh, discuss or, or, or swap links? And so I'm not sure what this, if, if what we're talking about as the, as, as the commons is people having conversations around something that Walter Cronkite might have said, is that a better, public, is that a better model of public media? I don't think it is. I mean, personally, I, I think it isn't. Um, I think there's more, you know, for instance, again, sorry, children are taxi drivers of, 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 of Deneau Shaw, because just as like when um, very disconnected journalists used to quote, Taxi drivers as being, you know, the, 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 the people they knew on in the lower income right. bracket to quote right. them in their articles. It's now we all quote our kids in terms of, you know, kind of. A, it, it's possible now to become more connected to debate and see what's going on if you're a young person with a Facebook page than it ever was to actually kind of, you know, crack into the land of watching a nightly news bulletin, which is one very specific view and one agenda. Um, but I don't think it. I, I, I don't think that negates the idea that we haven't worked out what that public commons looks like. Yeah, where, where do those streams cross? Where's the conversation where? Well, I think that you know we do have a lot of live data now coming in. And one of the things that I'm interested in at Columbia, one of the things that it's, it's interesting to talk to other people about um, in other universities is this huge kind of welter now of, of data about how people are consuming stuff, where they're getting it from, what it links to. Um, it's still pretty much <coughs> unanalyzed. I mean, I was kind of surprised during the did Twitter cause the Egyptian revolution discussion, which seemed to go on for longer than the revolution itself, <laughs> um, that actually the amount of what I would call real reporting of that was minimal, completely minimal. So there was a, a, a piece of Beaumont, who was an old colleague of mine at the Observer, went out and actually asked people on the streets, you know, well, what did you read and where did you get your information from and how did you connect that and what was the... And actually, if you look at Google Trends, or if you look at, kind of if you got inside Facebook's API or Twitter's API, and you were allowed to analyze the right data, you, you could see where some of those connections were being made. And what I would be optimistic that we can take some of the kind of our ethnographic skills and a lot more of this live data and start to make some more interesting connections about what this means and what we understand and how people are informed. Because I don't think we've really begun to do, to, to do that at all in a kind of meaningful way at the moment, but I think it's a, it's a good point. Hi, thank you. Um, my name is Lisa King. I'm a mid-career student here. And as we were, thank you for coming. This is a great conversation. And as we were talking about before this started, um, we published a newspaper called The Native Voice. We're the only independent national Native American press in this country. And so when the changing landscape hit us and we were no longer able to print, make a printed uh, volume, um, printed issues. Um, we were faced with the, the, the reality that a good portion of our readership, our new <coughs> readership, doesn't have good quality access to the, to the internet yet. Mm -hmm. So then we looked at the whole digital divide issue. And um, so that brings up the question for me, we ended up becoming sort of policy advocates in Washington, D.C. for quality access to the internet, dealing with uh, lobbying the FCC, talking to members of Congress, dealing with John Kerry had hearings on, on the Hill um, in the Senate Committee uh, on Technology and all those kinds of things. So my question for you is, um, oh, and then just to bring another piece in, you can say, well, the, the counter-argument to that is handheld data is access is highly accessible. But that's also really specific to age to a younger age demographic. So at this point anyway. 
so my question is, is that about the um, the appropriateness of those of us who are publishers or working on that side to become policy advocates and actually working on the political side of, of uh, I think it's I think it's a great question. It's actually something we think about at J schools as well, which is you know, the, and particularly in the sort of the canon of American journalism, which is to be completely the fourth estate question. Yeah. Fourth estate, <laughs> fourth estate related to kind of you know the rogues in the press gallery in um, British Parliament who were anything but non-partisan. <laughs> they were more there to kind of you know, I think sort of push their proprietors' <coughs> interests and keep keep the other side in in, in check. But um, I mean, we did a lot of work around open data in the UK through The Guardian and various kind of advocacy groups. We actually ended up probably being an advocate for and a sort of a, a again sort of talking to the government about how you open data up because we, we just saw that as a win-win. And I think access to technology, access to data is a win-win for journalistic organisations. It's something that you have to be concerned about and you know having a you have to have a view on. I think the idea of uh, you, you must have. I, I personally feel that you must have a position if you're a, a media organisation for any any substantial size on net neutrality issues. I don't see how those are separate um, from actually kind of you know advocating for a free press. Uh, so I don't have because I'm British. I don't have the same discomfort of when is when is advocacy wrong uh, because you know there's a lot of the, the, just through market mechanisms, there's much more advocacy in, 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 in British print media, much less actually in broadcast, but much more in, in British print media. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, kind of, it's like everything, isn't it? It's like those issues are not, it's not on the one hand, on the other. And I know the New York Times had creationism on the one hand, on the other, which mm -hmm. I do spend a lot of time saying to my students, <laughs> sometimes there isn't another hand. <laughs> and actually, so, the, 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 the connectivity of um, audiences, disenfranchised audiences to information is not something on which I think anybody in media has to feel at all ambivalent about pushing and advocating. And you're completely transparent about that. And this is the other thing that we haven't talked about, but there's that transparency and trust issue of uh, where are you coming from and are you kind of you know lobbying and paying people sort of you know covertly, or are you actually out there on the hill and organising debates and kind of galvanising communities around it? They're two completely different things. I think you know transparency is at the core of it. Okay. Nolan, did you have a question? I um, <clears throat> yes, I did. Uh, I note that uh, part of the uh, title of the talk you just gave was uh, redefining the role of the free press for the 21st century. And I'm not sure that I heard how no, the uh, roles ought to be uh, yeah. refined and changed. Um, moreover, while the uh, technology is destructive and changes uh, techniques and destroys institutions and jobs and ways of doing things, um, the roles seems to me is how you suggested uh, finding verifiable facts, reporting to uh, its readers and viewers, uh, members of the public, what they ought to know. Um, and it seems to me that that remains the same. Um, also, I'd like to know whether or not you think that uh, either government or private corporations have an affirmative obligation to subsidize journalism. I note that you work for The Guardian, and The Guardian receives much of its operating costs from profits from the independent, and that the, uh, some of the leading uh, 
journalism institutions that report sort of public information uh, subsidized by government, including BBC or mm -hmm. Al Jazeera or NPR yeah. or so that, CPP. Yeah. If you would address that, yeah. what's, your, what's your take? I mean, again, it's, I think there's, a, there's a, a big cultural difference in the lens that's brought to it from outside the US where the public funding of media is much more widely accepted as being a good thing as long as you provide the right mechanism that keeps government and um, media separate. And there's a rather arcane set of rules around the Royal Charter, and which relates back to the Queen in Parliament, who's essentially symbolic, and how the BBC gets its funding, which essentially is tax and could just be taken out of the Treasury, but it's important for symbolic reasons as it's not. I mean, just to, say, just to kind of clarify on, on The Guardian, The Guardian's actually subsidised by a second-hand car sales business. So it's, it's a auto trader. Which is a classified advertising business, so it's kind of like it's 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 just not stable to the paper. Um, back to you know how 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 the how if you like how you redefine how, how the role or how we redefine the role of the, the, the press, um, the, the digital twenty first century. You know, you're right; we haven't sort of nailed that part because I think it's difficult. I think the issue about what is the public commons is a good one. I think it is much more about understanding the technology and how that relates to reporting than it is doing the same things in the same way um, and if you like kind of the, re the redefined role I think is much more about holding power to account uh, because that is the core of the you know that's that's the core purpose of the press um, or was the core purpose of the press and, and, and still should be much of what the press does is not hold power to account it generates revenues through um, creating audiences and uh, it's some of it's in the entertainment business and would not be embarrassed, I think, to think itself as such. Uh, so the core purpose of this, going back to how you actually get accountability for government um, and for business and how you make that public, uh, I do think that that is around advocating for more kind of open data, having the tools and the ability to make that both public and searchable, but also to relate it in a form that people can connect to that may not look anything like the kind of journalism that we have at the moment. I think that that's, you know, that's the bit that we can see various tools and platforms struggling with, but that's the bit that's, that's, the bit that's important, that's the bit that will, will make the difference. And some of those skills, I hope, will kind of come out of, they will tend to come out of places which have traditionally supported um, the type of journalism that I grew up doing and that we're used to consuming here, because that those tend to be the places that attract people who are interested in who are interested in doing it. Um, I think publicly funded, as I say, publicly funding media to me was just part of how I grew up. And we have, you know, in the BBC, you have a kind of a remarkable institution which has many, many, many things wrong with it. Not least the fact that it is enormously has been enormously well funded against a dwindling uh, commercial sector. Uh, but I think something interesting is about to happen there, and I'd be, I'm going to be very interested to see what happens to uh, how American government thinks about this, which is, you mentioned Al Jazeera English, you mentioned the BBC, there's a Xinhua news agency as well in China. There's an awful lot of kind of state media and state-supported or publicly-supported media now, 
which has a kind of a voice and a presence in the, the, in the wider world. And America doesn't really have that, because it has a highly competitive, highly commercial, highly fragmented market. Uh, and I, I, I don't know how collectively and politically America necessarily feels about that. I'm sure the Republican Party would be perfectly happy for it to be Fox News, as they have both of their candidates on the payroll. But there is, a, you know, I think that I think that there is a an issue there which says if this is going to be a kind of a utility, how is it paid for and how is it regulated? And I, if you see the current systems failing as they are, it's difficult to know how you get to the other side of that divide without more intervention and without more regulation, even if it, even if it is for a short period of time. So I don't know how that will play out, but I think that you, if you want to the, the, the kind of the middle and the where America goes to discuss and to find out things, supported, it is it's 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 going to be something that people have to people have to think about. I'm sorry to say we're out of time. Are you have any do you have any more time? I mean, can you I, I have because I, I know that there are people yeah. who have questions and uh, and would like to to speak with you. Very, very, very interesting. And I think that Thank that, you. Uh, I failed to answer the question, but that's it.